don't we transition now uh, to our time of teaching? Uh, MB, thank you for running our tech this morning. Uh, really appreciative of you, uh, of course. Um, and just to prepare us before we, we get into the text, um, I was reading a little bit of uh, reading a little bit about the Christian Church in the days after Easter. And St. Augustine says that he describes the Christian community as Easter people. And I love that idea, but I, you know, I begin to wonder, well, where does he get that kind of idea? And I think one place that you can look is in the book of Acts, which two weeks ago, Pastor, you uh, taught on. And in the book of Acts, in, in chapter one, what we see is that Easter was not just kind of a one-day event where Jesus, uh, uh, where the empty tomb, uh, where the tomb was empty and Jesus appeared, but over 40 days, Jesus appeared and, re uh, appeared and reappeared time and time again. And so it was over this 40-day period that the, the, the Christian community was established, you might say, where there was, it was a foundational forming experience for the early Christian church. I think it's within that period, you might say, that they, they grew, uh, they, they, they were strengthened, they were equipped, and they became a, a people for their whole life revolved around what took place at Easter, what took place over those 40 days. And so I want to just take a, a small pause in our overall sermon series and, and, and take four or five weeks uh, to just talk about, reflect upon what it means to be a people whose lives are shaped by Easter. And I pray that this is impactful for us, not just in this next few weeks, but of course throughout the whole year. And we're going to do that by looking at Luke 24. So look with me on the screen. I'll go ahead and do. Luke 24 says this. This is verses 36 to 53. As they were talking about these things, these uh, as they being the disciples, Jesus himself stood among them and he said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why? Do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. They took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany. Lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And were continually in the temple, blessing God. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, join me in prayer as we, as we begin. Heavenly Father, 
Lord, I pray that during this time that you would minister to us. I pray that we would be as actively engaged in your word as we are in what we're hearing. And I pray, Lord, that, that this word would go out and would be healing for the people in this room, that you would strengthen us, that you would equip us for life in the city. To your name, for the love of others, we pray. Amen. So, I'm sure you're a little bit familiar with what is going on in the life of the early disciples at this point. But just as a, a little bit of a recap, the disciples have been in startup mode. They have launched this, this way, this new church, this new community. They've left house and home. They've left loved ones. They've left uh, their understanding of what their future could be. They've left uh, jobs, careers, stability, and they've also seen it all come crashing down. They built their life around one man, Jesus of Nazareth. And the astounding claims that he made about being the son of God. And they watched him get arrested. They watched him tried. They watched him killed and buried. And so this is a community that is feeling all kinds of dismay. They're a, feeling, they're a community that is, in many ways, feeling crushed. Uh, their griefs, you might say, are many. And to add intellectual insult to injury, their friends are telling them that Jesus has risen from the dead. And so you can imagine the kind of trouble that they're going through, that this is a crazy, desperate time in the lives of the disciples. And then Jesus appears. And what does he say? What does he say? Ta-da! Here I am. I'm back. No. Not at all. He speaks directly to their most pressing need. What does he say? He says, peace be to you. Peace be to you. And what that's telling us, that just in recap, is that Christians are not, are not told by God that they're not going to experience hard times. But what we see here is that hard times, though they're not going to go away, Christians are promised that the peace of Christ, which is a peace which enables uh, his followers to, to persevere, persevere evidently through anything, but not just to per persevere, but to push back into the world that is crumbling all around us. So it's a, a, a sustaining peace. It's an enabling peace. It's a, uh, it's a peace that compels us out, compels Christians out, but not alone necessarily. It's a peace. It's a it's a it's a peace um, that's given to Christians that they're called out, but not called out alone. They're called out to go out with others as they all pursue God. And so look, as we're looking at Luke 24, looking at this account, I think it shows us what the resurrection brings for Christians. And there are three things. It brings a coping peace. It brings a transformational peace. And it brings a communal peace. Coping, transformational, communal. Okay? So first, a coping peace. Christianity 
unapologetically offers and assures a peace that helps you cope with the realities of your life. In other words, Christianity offers wisdom and insight. It offers empathy. It offers understanding, strength, joy. It offers hope in the midst of the most difficult circumstances that a human can go through. We're not promised our times go away, but we're promised a peace that will enable us to contend, to even lead in the midst of the most shocking of times. So the resurrection of Jesus provides a coping peace. Now, we're familiar with, oftentimes we're more familiar with psychological terms than we are with biblical terms. So what does it mean to cope? Maybe it's helpful just to compare coping uh, mechanisms to defense mechanisms, right? We're familiar with those kinds of terms, right? What is a defense mechanism? A defense mechanism is uh, something that we do unconsciously to avoid points of pain. It's something that we do just, you know, that we're not aware of, that, that allows us to navigate away from things that are actually hurt us, and situations that we want to deal with, pain that we, we don't want to uh, acknowledge or recognize, that we're trying to work away from. And that, of course, uh, is embodied in all kinds of ways, right? Like maybe you're, you're a person that when you're confronted with conflict, you just laugh. It's just a knee-jerk response. You don't know why. You just laugh in the face of conflict, right? Or maybe you're a person who just works so hard because subconsciously there's some deficiency there. There's some uh, hole you're trying to cover up. Maybe, you know, there's some inadequacy. Who knows that you might be trying to fulfill? These are all defense mechanisms. They're subconscious. We're not aware necessarily. But we do them in order to navigate through life. But coping mechanisms are a little bit different. Coping mechanisms are those conscious acts in which we engage the, the intricacies and complexities of our life, which we know we struggle with this particular circumstance or this particular feeling or point of pain. And we say, I need something that's going to help me navigate through it. I'm not going to avoid it, but I cannot uh, allow myself, or I will not, will not be paralyzed anymore through it. So I need something to help me cope, to help me persevere through it, so I can learn and grow and change and not be paralyzed. And so coping with the death of, of Jesus, scratch that sentence, coping is what Jesus is, is doing here. He's coming to it to his friends who are struggling with the fact that he's died and he is giving them not just a mechanism. God gives them a man. What does he do? As soon as he shows up in the room, they're startled, they're frightened, they're troubled, and he takes them right to his body. Touch, see, right? Come and see. Um, uh, he takes him uh, right to his body, um, noticing their trouble. He says, uh, "He helps them cope. See my hands. See my feet." He assures them, "I'm not a spirit." He lovingly uh, deals with them. He helps them cope with the reality of their life. 
And the first place he takes them to is the resurrection. Imagine all the things that they're struggling with. Imagine that they're thinking about maybe their finances, their political future. Maybe they're thinking about, are they going to be arrested? What is this community that I have, that, that they're a part of? He doesn't talk about any of that stuff. Because he knows the most pressing need they have is for them to see that he's risen from the dead. That's the point of peace. That's the primary place in which he's saying, not just to them, but to the whole world, if you want to cope with life, you have to cope with me. You have to deal with me, deal with this body. It's amazing. So he, he invites them to cope through this coping peace by his physical presence. And in the Acts 1 passage, it says that he repeatedly came to them over 40 days in instances like this. And I always thought that was so strange. Why would he do that? Why does he just stay? Why did he stay with them? And I think it has something to do with this. If this one instance happened, and there were no subsequent instances like this, you might very well become not a, not a community based on the literal resurrection. You might become a community based on a superstition, a feeling that I think this took place. But by the fact that he comes repeatedly over and over and over again, over 40 days, in manners like this, on, like on the road to Emmaus, they're able to say, this same Jesus returned. I touched him multiple times. I sat with him. I ate fish with this guy. He made kind of jokes with me. I saw him rise from the dead. So there's a coping piece that's physical. There's a coping piece that's also spiritual. Because none of us have seen Jesus risen from the dead. So this is actually important for us. In the passage, he says, my spirit is going to come. My spirit is going to come because I'm going to leave again and I will be absent, but my spirit will be present, and my physical presence and my spiritual presence are a part of the same whole. It's the same experience. Whether I'm away or whether I'm, um, I'm, uh, my spirit is there, my spiritual presence will help you cope as well, too. The Apostle Paul gives us a window into this. In Philippians uh, 4, he says that Christians have... Um, a peace that surpasses understanding. And I'd be the first to admit Christians, we overutilize this term so often. Sometimes because we're so desperate to comfort people in the comfort that they really need. So we don't have language for it, right? But Paul, I think, is saying that the peace that surpasses understanding is a direct correlation to the body that's been risen from the dead that surpasses our understanding. The peace that surpasses understanding is a resurrected peace. So there's a peace which is commensurate with the resurrection. I think to the same degree that the resurrection surpasses our understanding, that extends, uh, the resurrection extends beyond what we imagine as possible, Christianity provides a peace that at the very least is equal in proportion. And because of, uh, and we need that because much of life circumstances surpass our understanding. This is the kind of peace that we actually need. So the question is, is what is the kind of peace that you're seeking? 
Where are you looking forward? There is such a thing as the world's peace, and we know that the world's peace is unpredictable, it's spasmodic, because the peace of the world is always rooted in our circumstances. But Christian peace, because it's tied to the resurrection, is ongoing and it's eternal. Christians are meant to cope with that, allow that peace. We get to shape them. That is not the only kind of peace that this resurrection life offers. Christianity, through the resurrection, offers a, a coping peace, but it also offers a transformational peace. And we need both, my friends. Both. Uh, commentators have suggested that because Christ, the Christian church is so much like Western culture, that we tend to overemphasize the coping aspect of what it is to be a Christian. That we look for God to primarily help us cope with the problems of our lives. And we do do so at a disservice, or we overemphasize that to, uh, and, and therefore underemphasize the fact that the peace of Christ is meant to transform people as well. So Alan Noble, who's a philosopher, he's a thought leader uh, and a, a college professor, he says, he says this, he says, like the rest of Western society, the church tends to be good at helping people cope with modern life, but not at undoing the disorder of modern life. And what he means by that is that we, obviously we, we need uh, resources to help cope, but we don't turn and allow that same peace to direct us towards those things that force that, that we need coping for. Does that make sense? Uh, when it comes to undoing the disorder of modern life, what that means is that Christians are called to recognize and address those things which cause us the most pain, that cause the most societal pain. That we're not only to look to our personal past, maybe to look to our present relationships. Uh, but we are to look to our vocations and, and recognize where are those places where we can be agents of change, agents of growth, that we can be uh, uh, tools utilized to, to undo the brokenness of this world, to bring resurrection to those particular aspects. And of course, we all know what some of those are, right? Climate change and social issues, uh, greed in the world, corruption in, in government. These are, these are all places where the undoing of disorder needs to be addressed. Uh, they need, it needs to be recognized, it needs to be analyzed, dissected. If those areas of our lives which we continue to struggle as a society, as, a, as individuals, those are, those are things that we need to, to address, and Jesus does that. How does he do that? He does that through the resurrection. It's in the resurrection that we see that Jesus takes the one problem that no human has yet to solve. And he doesn't just help us cope with it, but he undoes it. The one problem that no human has yet to solve is that of death. And in the resurrection, Jesus doesn't just uh, 
help us cope with it, but he undoes it so that we can be, so Christians can be people who face death, work through it, and be agents of people who are working to undo that as well. And so what he provides there is not just a transformational piece, but a transformational principle. And so the disciples are experiencing that right there in, in the particular passage, right? They're startled, they're troubled, they're afraid. And so they're coming to terms with this initial encounter. They go from being startled and afraid and troubled to a perplexed, marveling joy. To a perplexed, marveling joy. So as we see this particular group of friends, we also recognize that they're in real trouble. And what we're talking about here is just driving at, this, at the, uh, the central problem of their lives. They're in real trouble, right? Because of the impact of, of the death of Jesus. But he doesn't just deal directly with that trouble, he goes to the source of their trouble. And what I think it's important for us to see here is that the source of their trouble is actually the source of their joy. The source of their trouble is actually the source of their joy. And the promise of Christianity is that through the resurrection, sorrow is turned to joy. Their troubles are turned to wonder. Sorrow is turned to joy, their troubles are turned to wonder. It's not that he takes it away, but he transforms it. It's not that he takes it away, but he transforms it. I don't just ask all of us just to think about our own lives right now. What are those areas of your life? that you just want that trouble to be taken away, to be removed. Maybe it's in your work, maybe it's in your marriage, maybe it's in your lack of a relationship, maybe it's in your past. You just simply want that to be taken away. But what this passage is teaching us is that God is not intent in just taking away, but what he, what he wants to do is remove its power by transforming it. And so this gives us a transformational principle, doesn't it? And the transformational principle is, is as we lean into these areas, as we cope with the realities of our lives, trusting in Jesus, we have this general principle that his transformational power can be at work. Now we have to also recognize that there are there are circumstances in our lives where only resurrection can actually bring joy. And that resurrection may not take place in this lifetime. And based on the resurrection of Jesus, you can have hope that one day you might be united to people that you might be united to people where the loss of their life is brought you a tremendous sense of uh, trouble. 
And yet, because of the general transformational principle, you can anticipate that in areas of your life where you experience tremendous grief, that there can be redemption, and that there can be renewal. And these are all symptoms of the resurrection. What does it look like to experience redemption? What it looks like to experience redemption is to have lived through a circumstance that is so painful, so brutal, that it probably won't ever change, but to lean into it instead of instead of avoiding it, but to lean into it so that it loses its power in your own life. And you're able to provide joy as you talk about it with other people. So for instance, I work with people uh, weekly who are experiencing unexpected pregnancy. And there are tremendous resources uh, that I am able to share, uh, not because uh, I know their circumstances perfectly, but because I've been married, I know how hard marriage can be, right? Because I, I just, I have a little bit more wisdom because of this transformational principle and able to lean into sort of the aches and pains and griefs, and failures of my own life, and look at all the regrets that I might have. And yet, because of this transformational principle, because of the resurrection, I'm able to actually able to help, I hope, bring relief, bring joy to other people. And I know this is, I'm sorry, I use myself as a reference point, but I think you get, you get the point. So that's redemption. There's areas of renewal. There are places that we, if we never address, they will just continue to continue to be hard places, hard uh, areas of our lives. But renewal means that something beautiful can actually come out. But it's not a lost cause, so to speak, but there's actually opportunity for growth and change, right? So we need a transformational piece, or yes, we need a coping piece, we need a transformational piece. The resurrection provides them both. Alan Noble says this about, about the gospel. He says, you know, the gospel is not a preference for people. It's not another piece of flair that we add to our vest. It's something far more beautiful and disturbing. The gospel is the power to raise the dead, to proclaim the greatness of God in a fallen and confused world. And so out of this coping peace and transformational peace, God calls us to go out into the world as witnesses of this beautiful and disturbing reality. And he calls us to go out as in a community uh, and we see that in verse 48. He says, you are my witnesses. Now you can imagine that this community of friends, this community of people that came together were all very diverse. They didn't really get to know each other, but they got to know each other quite well as they experienced life together with Jesus. Um, and through that experience, uh, they didn't just experience one another's uh, compatibility, they didn't just experience one of those gifts. What they experienced in the life of that community was the peace of Christ. Now, some of us have been reading a book called Life Together. And in Life Together is a book by a, a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he says in there that it's the peace of Christ that draws people to, uh, to one another in a way that, uh, that draws people to a way that they, in a sense, uh, experience the incomparable joy and the strength that only comes from Christ. 
And so what you see in Christian communities, and I think what you saw here with the disciples, is that um, they needed to be together. They didn't just want to be together, but they needed to be together. And in their need of being together, that was a witness to the world of something different. When I first became a Christian, um, I was here in the city, I was relatively alone, I had no communal, community Christian and Christian, and no Christian community, uh, not like I have now. And I remember feeling a deep kin, kinship with total strangers on the subway. In my commute in the mornings, I would see older African-American men and women reading their Bibles on the subway. And they were doing what I was doing at home, but they were doing it en route. And I was so ridiculous, because I would try and make eye contact. I would be like, oh, what are you reading? All that kind of thing. What was going on there? I didn't really know. I needed to be with them. I needed to experience more of the peace of Christ by being more in the lives of those particular people. Bonhoeffer says this, he says, the physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. And we think about going out there and being a witness to the world, that is a staggering, scary idea. Start by recognizing the peace of Christ in others. Start by recognizing your own need, not deflecting it, but actually saying, I need uh, I need the peace that is in others. Uh, I need to experience the peace of others. And I only get that by being with others. Can you be a witness? Can you be a witness? When I, uh, Susan and I, in our first community group, there was a community of uh, old and young, uh, white, black, Asian. Um, some were really hip, other, others of us were not. Um, but we had to work really hard to understand each other. We had to work really hard uh, to, in some sense, like each other and value each other. But over time, that took place. And one day we were at Good Stuff Diner on 14th Street, and I watched this woman watch us. And, you know, New York, we're, we're full of characters, so who knows? I wasn't, we weren't threatening or anything, but I saw her watching us and I wondered why. And as I was paying, she came up and she asked with total curiosity, how do you know each other? <laughs> and I said, you might even believe, we're a church, we're Christians. And she walked away even more confused. <laughs> but the reality was, uh, we're an Easter people. We weren't, we weren't there because we had personal affinities for each other. We were there because the coping piece of Christ had been at work in our lives, because the transforming work of Christ, the uh, peace of Christ was at work in our lives, because we knew we were called to be a witness, but we didn't know what that looked like. But we were learning together. And uh, she saw that. And the job of the church is to do better than I did and articulate why we do it. May that be true of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,
I thank you, Lord, for your love, your kindness, and I thank you, Lord, that you are God true to your word, that you raised Jesus from the dead. Lord, help us to base our lives around that. To the glory of your name, pray this in Jesus' name.